Thank you for listening to the Divine Nobodies Podcast with Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe so you never miss a show. If you're on Instagram, please follow us at Divine Nobodies Podcast and join our ever-growing community of lightworkers and spiritual visionaries. Together, we can raise the frequency of our planet and bring in a new era of awakening and inner standing. Welcome to our tribe. And now your hosts, Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. Thank you for tuning in to Divine Nobody's Podcast. How are you doing, Jen? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I feel nice and refreshed. I oh, yeah. feel nice and refreshed. I just feel very light on my feet. I went camping last weekend, just letting you know. Oh, that's why. You got yeah, that, that yeah. dose of, of nature. I got that dose of nature. Actually, it was, it was sort of an inaugural thing because uh, before pandemic, me and my friends used to go camping all the time. But this was our first time camping since the pandemic started. Oh, and wow. being able to reconnect with everybody and talk with people I haven't spoke to in a long time was actually a really, really great feeling to be around the cronies and the friends. You know what I mean? Oh, that's fun. Yeah. I haven't yeah, been so, camping in a long time. You know what I found out while I was at camping, by the way? I didn't know this. I've been out of kind uh-huh. of the loop for a while. But you know, there are people that are still going to Burning Man, even though Burning Man isn't officially happening. Yeah. Yeah. We, we know some people that are going. I was figuring, I was wondering, cause you go to Burning Man a lot. Are you going to go? I do. No, I'm not. I'm not. not. It's, I have to be honest. Uh, Burning Man is not a, an inexpensive trip. It's really far. It requires a lot of preparation and shelter. And now that we don't have an RV anymore, um, we would need to rent one. And then there's the whole, you know, you have to buy all the food and the water and everything to survive out there. It's a very expensive task. So um, for us to travel that far and um, spend that kind of money, I, I need a little bit more organization. Yeah, and that makes sense. The people that I yeah. talked to, they were used to kind of going through that whole process when Burning Man was was happening or like the lottery system. They're trying to get a ticket and then they go mm-hmm. through the whole preparation. These are my, my Burning Man friends are people that like that sort of like survivalist type of world, you know, yeah. but I mm-hmm. guess the, the one thing that they are celebrating about this time around is that you can go for a couple of days. Of course, in their mind, the investment isn't as much as if you were to actually go to Burning Man because those tickets are really expensive. Mm-hmm. And some people are just going for a day or two. And because there aren't that many people going, I think they've said it was only going to be like nine or 10,000 people. It's going to be closer to how Burning Man used to be. Used to be. Yeah. So Where it's more like a camping trip and it's it's um, less like, you know, a two week commitment. You know, because anytime we go, we're there usually minimum for a week. So yeah, and there's, and there's an element of danger too. At least, like yeah. I said, if you've I've watched a documentary a while back about Burning Man and the stuff that they used to do prior to it becoming like really, really popular, like blowing mm. shit up, setting things on fire. Yeah, wasn't the safest place, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like the Wild West. It's like yeah. um, Mad Max. Real life Mad Max. Yeah, yeah, like real life Mad Max. So I went out there, I went out camping. This was actually a campsite that was closer to San Diego. Passed by Julian, got some pie. Oh, I love Julian. And when we got there, there was, I think it was about 20 of us. When we got there, they didn't, the the campsite, they didn't say anything to anybody, but there was these markers that were around where the campfire would be that says no fires, no campfires allowed. What the hell? How do you camp without a campfire? I think it was a last minute thing. And we asked around, I think it's because I guess the Dixie fire was, is happening right now. So they have a lot of fire departments, I guess, local to California that are headed down in that direction. So maybe they didn't have coverage in that area, Mm, but we could not have a campfire during the time that we were there. Oh my gosh. What did you guys do? 
which kind of was like a bummer. But a bummer. I mean, we were able to connect and we were able to like hang out and be together. We made the best of that experience, but it's just one of those things we've never had to experience before. So what we did, I mean, it was cold. It's cold as shit, actually. It was like 30 or 40 degrees as really? like the temperature started to get lower and lower once the, the sun went down. Oh, yeah. And uh, luckily, no a lot of people Ooh. in the camp had like heaters, portable heaters and, and things like that. It was fun. It was fun. But the plus side of this, the, the benefit of it is it was a really amazing experience to be out in nature amongst the trees with friends that I haven't connected with in a long time. And there's just like a stillness in nature that, uh-huh. you know, you really, really forget exists when you're in the loudness of the city. You know what I mean? Like your body slows down, your mind slows down, you know, everything that was occupying my ego suddenly just stops because there's nothing really for you to do when you're out there. And it wasn't even like I had to do any sort of like maneuver and trying to get my ego to stop just to slowly adapt to my environment. It's just suddenly, it just slowly, slowly waned Mm -hmm. through my attention to what was in my present moment, you know? And I think that's the wonderful thing about being amongst nature is that it just has this ability to regulate your body. Oh yeah. You got that vitamin G, vitamin vitamin green. Yeah. What about that vitamin OG? (laughs) That vitamin green. It's definitely very healing. I need a dose of vitamin green. I feel like very sluggish. And being out here in the desert, uh, even though the desert has has a different kind of magic, it's just so different from California. So it was nice. I came back from that experience just feeling really good, really recharged. I'm, I'm ready to get all gangster on the subject we're going to be talking about. Awesome. Speaking of the ego sort of quieting down, I'm going to get Edward James almost and stand and deliver on this shit. All right. I'm going to get Robin Williams and Dead Poet Society on this shit today. All right. I can't wait. Or better yet, I'm going to get Mario Savio at Sprout Hall Steps in San Francisco on this shit today. All right. Hey. <laughs> The subject that we're going to be talking about, me and Jen today. Thank you guys again for tuning in. I think I already said that, but welcome. So we're going to be talking about elements of the ego today. Something that I think we've talked about um, back and forth throughout the podcast. I mean, it, ego is in the landscape, in the sort of spiritual landscape of most of the things that we talk about. I thought we'd like focus some energy on the ego. We're going to ask all type of questions is, you know, what is the ego? We're going to talk about what is toxic ego? What is healthy ego? You know, what do we do about intrusive thoughts? Because everybody has them. I have them. I know you Mm -hmm. have them. And what is a healthy ego? We're going to talk about the ego's imagery inside of the mind, what it looks like, what it looks like as you go throughout your day. This is something really important to talk about because some of the imagery that comes across our minds is like totally crazy shit sometimes. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, well, what is spirit in contrast to that ego? And I guess all the dynamics of how it moves inside of our body and what you can do to sort of better equip yourself to work with the ego by identifying basically how it works, what it does, all the pros and cons of it, and how to establish balance between yourself and the ego. All right. You know what I mean? So I'm going to start it off with a quote. Seems to be the best best way to start. I'd like to start off the, the podcast with a quote, Jen. Kind of gets the gears going. <laughs> this is, a, I'm going to read it off here. It's, it's a, okay. a quote by Deepak Chopra. Father Ooh, Deepak. A word salad. I'm excited. Father Deepak. No, it's not going to be word salad this time. <laughs> I'm this just kidding. Actually, I'm kidding. You know, <laughs> this is going to be Grandfather Chopra. And it says, in Sanskrit, the ego is called ahamkara and operates as the focal point for personal experience through the mind, feelings, and senses whether one is in a physical body or not. So death in itself is not seen as a release from the ego. To be free of the ego spiritually is called enlightenment. And to the Vedic seers, it is not seen as the disappearance of the ego as much as it is a shift in selfhood, away from identifying yourself with the objects of experiencing to knowing, to knowing your true essence as unbound, pure consciousness. The small ego identity is based upon a misunderstanding of your real nature. The universal ego, or cosmic self, is based on knowing your real nature as beyond all thoughts, feelings, or external experiences. Sincerely, Deepak Chopra. I feel like we summed up the podcast in just this quote. I think we're done. Yeah, we're done. There's really not, right. not, not much else to say, Jen. <laughs> right. Kind of covered it all. 
Yeah, he did yeah. cover it all. So I'm going to go over a lot of different things, but we're going to just sprinkle. We're going to add some sprinkles to the spiritual cupcakes right now by going into going into the ego. So the ego is is masculine and the spirit is feminine. We both have these qualities inside of us. The ego creates, it's logical, it's rational. It is uh, sort of like the builder. It is the, the program that you need in order to manifest and move in this life. And then spirit is basically the creative force. It's beautiful, it's deep, it's compassionate and loving. It's more or less kind of like a female. And I know we talk a lot about balance on the podcast, but if you look at these two dynamics as being you know, your feminine and your masculine side, just like Carl Jung talks about mm-hmm. the animus and the animal, we have both of these working inside of us all the time. So the ego, and we'll go into exactly what the ego is, but I wanted to just share a story or just share some sort of personal information about how ego manifests in my life, stuff that I've had to actually had to struggle with when it comes to ego. So I tend to romanticize. No, I, I, what? I romanticize a lot. Don't I romanticize, Jen? <laughs> yeah, of course you do. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to see my life as being beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, I see people as honest. I see people as good. I try and find the, the greatest qualities inside of people that I can. Mm-hmm. You know, and that works to my detriment sometimes because Mm -hmm. that isn't exactly how the universe works all the time. My ego is this this formulation of all of the the thoughts that I've accumulated. How I romanticize can be also seen as an overactive ego in some ways. I have more of my feminine sort of side of me working. I've been more integrated now with my masculine. I feel like I'm more into, I'm more balanced with that now. But that's something that I definitely had to work on, which is mm-hmm. understanding that life isn't just all sunshines and rainbows all the time. You have to kind of bring yourself back down right. and really uh, embody your masculine nature, which is being a little bit more grounded. I, I struggle with the opposite. Like I really struggle with femininity and that's been something that I've been working on too. So yeah. I think that's the reason why this podcast makes sense, Jen. Maybe. I'm like the, the female and you're like the man. We've sort of switched roles on this. So another way that my ego sort of manifests in my life is that uh, I can envision the most beautiful scenarios and things. Uh, I can hear music inside of my head, like really, really mm-hmm. clearly. I think this um, is something that really helped me out when I was younger. I'm one of those people that can pick up a guitar and learn like any song by ear. Yeah. You know? And that is, I'm very jealous. That is an amazing talent and something I always wish I could do. I'm really good with words. Like uh, I can hear a song one time and memorize half the words, but as far I, as like music being musically inclined yeah so okay. i can sing a song yeah. and, and i can sing a song and, and sing it back in tune for whatever reason i'm able to remember the the, the tone and the, the key that a song is in so i can sing it back to you in exactly the same tone um, you're like a human auto tune <laughs> i can see like huge i can see like really vivid full images and reels inside of my mind yeah right? and this is kind of how my my ego operates you know mm-hmm. it is this, this is really strong sort of muscle muscle that has a certain way of accumulating information saving information and relaying that information out and everybody yeah. has the uh, different elements of this there we think there was an article that you read there are people that have this sort of voice inside of their mind that is talking perpetually talking all the time and then there are actually people out there in the world that don't have that Right. Yeah. You know, this is, this blew my mind. So apparently this broke the internet, but I'm not really on the internet and I don't really do social media. So I missed this whole thing. But my sister brought this up to me and she was like, yeah, can you believe that there's some people that don't have an inner monologue? And I was like, what? I mean, I just can't even fathom that. Right. Because I feel like I talk to myself all day long. Um, but apparently that's a real thing. And people who don't have an inner monologue, actually, instead of hearing words in their head, they see pictures and experience feelings. So yeah. um, for example, like your boss is like, hey, uh, I'm going to need you to work on Saturday and Sunday too and finish that TPS report. Like rather than thinking in your head, like, hey boss, you can fuck off. I'm not going to work this weekend. They actually don't don't have that inner monologue. And instead they just feel a feeling of anger rather than actually hearing words in their head. So I thought that was really interesting because I I do both. Like I feel angry and I have words in my head. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I was reading the same thing because you shared some information on it, but it said it is an estimated about two to five percent of the population have a lifelong inability to generate any images within their mind's eye. And then there's uh, Madison Epting, is an author of An Apologetically Human, says that many of us who do not have an internal monologue that is constantly discussing the events of our day will adopt involuntary visualizations triggered by specific words, phrases, and thoughts, right? So maybe they may not have like an internal monologue, as in like a voice that is moving through their mind, but they can visualize images. Yeah, they, they um, instead of hearing a voice in their head, they, they do it with images and, um, and express it through feelings. Yeah. I think is pretty cool. Yeah, it says a lack of uh, a lack of inner monologue has been linked to a condition called aphantasia, sometimes called blindness of the mind's eye. People who experience aphantasia—that's a cool word, aphantasia. Yeah, I like the way sounds that sounds. Like sounds the the kingdom and never-ending story. Yeah, it, some people who experience aphantasia don't experience visualizations in their mind. They can mentally picture their bedroom or their mother's face many times. Those who don't experience visualizations don't experience clear inner speech either. So it's visual versus. Visual inward communication. You know what's so interesting? What this brings up for me is I have a lot of bilingual friends, like a lot of Asian friends and Hispanic yeah. friends and things like that. Mm-hmm. And their first language was, let's just say, Mandarin or Spanish. I remember a question that came up for me that I thought was really interesting is, do you think in Mandarin and then translate and in English? It. Yeah, they do. You thought about that? Yeah, no, I have. And I've actually asked about it. And um, like, you know, my good friend Eddie um, speaks Portuguese and that's his um, his first language. And I asked him, he said, no, I only think in Portuguese and then I translate into English. That's crazy. Like, really interesting. Yeah. Okay. I'm just wondering how, how they do it so quickly um, with words that don't translate. I don't know. I couldn't even imagine what it would be like to know another language because I don't know another language. It, it seems to be more difficult for them, maybe not more difficult for them, but for me to wrap my brain around the fact that for example, I think in Chinese or, or Mandarin, like they, they work more in symbols. Like they, they, one thing that I notice when I talk to them is that they say that the American language is way too, way too complicated when it doesn't need to be, you know? Mm, interesting. Yeah. Like we have all these really, really difficult, challenging things like we're, we're, and we're, they're, there and there. Yeah. You I know? guess that's true. I didn't think about that. And words that, that mean the same thing. Yeah. Words like, that mean the same thing. Yeah. So, so I was thinking about like the people that don't have an inner monologue, it, it kind of like, if anything, this should like reinforce how stable the ego is, right? And its ability to correctly interpret your your true self and whether or not it exists at all. Because ego is largely generated by that sort of voice that people have in their heads. So if somebody doesn't have that inner monologue all the time, then there's something shaky about the ego that almost questions the fact that it even exists. I don't I don't know about that. I I don't know about that. But um I I will say, you know, my sister brought up something and I thought it was pretty interesting. Um she was like, so I have a question. If um, if your mind is quiet all the time, it, does that mean that those people who don't have an inner monologue are constantly in meditation? I was like, well, I think meditation is um, also about intention as well as quieting the mind. What do you oh, think yeah. about that? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Like it doesn't, it, maybe they're one step ahead in, in terms of, uh, you know, silencing that inner dialogue, but that doesn't negate personal responsibility, Yeah. right? Like there, there, there's still some sort of movement that, that takes place that has to come from a loving space because you can be just as destructive having not thought about what you're going to do prior to doing it. Oh, totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there are a lot of people that do that. There are a lot of people that just, they do stupid shit and then think about it later. And maybe they were present with what they were doing, but it was still sort of destructive. You know what I mean? Do you think those people could possibly be a little bit happier um, compared to a person that does have an inner monologue? I don't know because they don't know what it's like to not, they don't know what it's like to have an inner monologue. So I don't know that it would, they would be happier. 
the reason why I say happier is they don't have negative self-talk or maybe if they do, it's in a different way. Right. I think it's in a different way. Like this whole, what what, what I was reading about with this, this whole article is I don't think that they completely have no sense of self other than the actions that they participate in on a regular everyday basis. It almost seemed like they just have a different type of interaction with an inward type of energy, which is seeing maybe um, symbols and opposed to words. Maybe, maybe yeah. they won't hear an inner dialogue. They won't hear an inner dialogue, but they will still be able to picture, in create some senses. sort of picture in their mind. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so I, I feel like maybe they might be one step ahead in the fact that they, maybe it's easy for them to go into the flow state. But I think what meditation is and the flow state is, is an integration of your spirit as well as your ego and mm-hmm. the beautiful things that come as a result of that balance, you know? Yeah. Because you can be, you can still not use your mind and be present and cause a lot of damage and do a lot of crazy shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, um, I thought this was interesting because uh, it, it makes me think of people who are um, autistic, you know, so autistic, and this is like a little Snapple fact, but um, autistic people will not contagiously yawn. So, you know, if you yawn, um, it's actually accessing uh, a center in your brain that's accessing empathy. So mm-hmm. uh, if I see you yawn, I will yawn because I, I'm able to access that, that area of my brain that is, is regulating empathy. But for, um, for people who are, oh my God, what was I just talking about? I just totally lost my train of thought. You're talking about autistic people. Yeah. Yeah. People who are autistic. They, um, (laughs) (laughs) thank you. Um, they're not empathetic, so they're not able to contagiously yawn because, um, they can't access that area of their brain. So I'm wondering if this is like more common in, um, people who are autistic. I wonder if there's do a correlation. Do you think that people that are autistic just don't have empathy at all? Um, no, I think that they do. I think that there is an inability to access it. What do you mean by access it? Like access that portion of their brain that um, that would exhibit empathy. Like being able to like have an inward dialogue of, of empathy for somebody else? Um, yeah, they're not able to understand feelings of other people. Like yeah. that doesn't register to them. Yeah. Because um, their brain just, they're not able to process it. Yeah. So I looked it up and this is something that I've read too, which is like the hippocampus located mm-hmm. in the brain's temporal lobe is where the episodic memories are formed and indexed for later access. Episodic memories are autobiographical memories from specific events in our lives, like the coffee we had with a friend last week. This to me, at least to me, is almost like proof for me that the ego is more material and not spiritual because it's something that is stored and archived inside of the brain. And for example, okay. like uh, Ram Das, right? He, he had a stroke and this was somebody that definitely had a, a, a strong sense of self in a healthy way. But once he had the stroke, he lost a lot of his ability to cognitively speak about lots of spiritual subjects in the way that he used to. Right. And there were certain elements of his personality that it almost seemed like disappeared. So if, if the ego is real, and then, then why is it that we have these situations with people that maybe suffer some sort of trauma or people that have autism where somehow the ego is not present or somehow is, is suddenly taken away like that if it was real or if it, at least, if it at least was a part of the spirit? It would be sort of always self-sustainable, wouldn't it? I never really thought about it that way. Yeah. I guess that's a possibility. So it, it, mm. I just want to reinforce basic, well, we're going to go into this. Let's go into okay. what is, what exactly is, is ego, Jen. Okay. So spirit is the data sphere of, well, we're going to make a distinction. So spirit is the data sphere of information. It's connected to source at all times. We can look at ourselves like our deepest aspect of ourselves as being like pure potential creativity, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of this, you have the ego. And the ego is basically the program software that we need in order to experience this dimension. Mm-hmm. Right. For example, you can't download our podcast without 
a podcasting platform in order to listen to it. So mm-hmm. you need to have something in order to translate whatever it is that you're experiencing in this realm, right? So spirit moves in all directions. It's wild. And ego is basically like the program that centralizes our experience and ego localizes spirit into this realm. It's almost like when you think about it, it almost reminds me of like a, a VR sort of simulation because you're, you're the spirit and you're at the, you're at the seat of this sort of machine that has all of the senses working. You have your taste, your smell, your sight, your hearing, all of these things that you need in order to experience the life that's right in front of you. If you didn't have those things, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't be able to do that, right? And then the ego is the one that translates all these experiences that come in. I saw this um, video on YouTube the other day about these group of programmers that worked for PlayStation, and they're working with this engine called Unreal, and it is unlike any sort of production software I've ever seen in my life. The imagery and the graphics are so unbelievably real that you can't tell the difference between real life and virtual reality. Is this the the one that was making the humans and they look like real humans? I mean, it could be. I think it, it might could be. be I, but yeah, I saw something like that. I read an article about it. Something. Imagine if yeah. it's like this sort of like fractal thing where we're in, in, in an actual simulation right now and it's so real that we can't even tell the difference. Oh my gosh, how cool would that be? Like you can't even tell the difference. And a part of this whole like s- spiritual thing is, is is basically just about trying to get us to take the VR headset off. You know? <laughs> For sure. So the ego is generated by memory, right? Just like I talked about the hippocampus and where it's located at in the brain. So just we're going to go over some bullet points on exactly what ego is and then we can talk about it. Um, so ego is survival. So it focuses on this is, I wanted to bring this up. This is actually really important. Ego is, sole function is to keep you alive. So if you look at the most primitive aspect of, of ego down to, I guess, the evolutionary sort of perspective of it is mm-hmm. that it's that one function that allow, that that helps you stay alive. So it's always scanning the environment, wanting to make sure that you sustain living your life without actually being killed by things like animals. So right. it can help you eat. It can help sort of scan the environment for any sort of like potential threats. So in some ways, the ego really, really focused on the negative most of the time. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, most of the time. I mean, the ego kind of acts in both ways, though. It can build you up and it can tear you down just as fast. Probably the most dangerous part of the ego is keeping you in your comfort zone and making you operate from a place of fear so you never change your situation. But when I think about fear, like what is ego's affiliation with fear? Why does it fear things? So whenever mm-hmm. it sees something or someone or some sort of emotional form of stimuli as a threat, it automatically creates a sort of fear response. And so that's Mm -hmm. why I feel like the job of the ego is really to try and stay alive. It's trying to sustain the sort of image that it has of of itself. And I guess the evolutionary piece is that it does that to protect you from being killed. But from the emotional perspective, it almost can't tell the difference between an emotional threat and a physical threat. So if somebody comes along and, you know, jeopardizes your sense of self, Mm-hmm. As a protective me- mechanism, it'll create, it'll use the same sort of protective mechanism that it does in the wild and see a thought or a person as a threat. Yeah, you know what for I mean? sure. So the, ego, the ego thinks it's God and it has this like false sense of humility. You know, anytime you're feeling like doubtful or worried or have incessant questioning, like all that stuff is all the ego. Yeah. So it's the strict, ego, it's rigid, it's controlling. Right. And it does these things as, as an attempt to survive, right? It, right. it, it wants mm-hmm. to, it, it knows fundamentally that its time is very limited. So it wants to hold on to as much as it can and gain control of everything that it can, mm-hmm. everything that it can. And it does this through certain types of behaviors. For example, the ego defines everything to maintain the illusion of control. Like it, this is the reason why we label fucking everything. Like everything is labeled. Man, this sounds like my ex. <laughs> this sounds like your ex. 
Because it's like the ego has a really, really difficult time with not knowing things. So it'll just put labels on things in order to give it itself a sense of comfort. So it, 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 it does all these sort of like protective measures in order to ensure the longevity of its, its life. So the ego, I guess then those are the more negative sides, but I'm talking about the most primitive side of ego. Like, why is it that we have one at the very, very start to begin with? It does a lot of really good things. It keeps us alive. Like it helps yeah. us eat. It helps us experience this, this life. It's what gives us the ability to distinguish our experience from somebody else's. If you didn't have an ego, you wouldn't even know who you were right. apart from somebody else. You know what I mean? You'd be like an animal. You'd be like any other, you know. Uh, non-sentient creature in the environment that is acting purely off of instinct. And so you need the ego in order to create a context for your experience. And there are good reasons for for having it. So it's mm -hmm. how we differentiate self from other. And how it does that is it basically becomes this storehouse, this storehouse and archive of experiences that you've had throughout your life. It just constantly accumulates information and experiences. And then it creates this sort of sense of self based off of those experiences. And we, for the most part, identify those experiences as being who we are. And it almost acts as sort of like this moral compass. It judges what it knows based off of its experiences. It's our sense of identity in this realm. Ego is based in time. So for the most part, it's based off of past and future. That's really all it is. When people yeah. think of time, like Jiddu Krishnamurti talks a lot about this, like, well, what is the ego? Ego is time. Because the yeah. only thing that gets constantly sort of like brought into your consciousness when you think are things that have either happened already or some sort of idea of what may happen in the future. Right. It's never based in the present moment. So it's always based in time. So it's any sort of inward dialogue or chatter that you have is likely recycled from something you've already experienced before mm -hmm. or some sort of idea of what you think may actually happen in the future. Yeah. No. And it's, that's a, a super easy way to differentiate between if you're hearing your ego or if you're hearing spirit is um, just by reference of time. So if, exactly. if, you're, if you're being present, then that's spirit. And if you're living in the past or in the future, that's ego. Right. Exactly. And the ego's sole purpose is survival. Like the ego doesn't realize that you are a spirit. It thinks you're the body and right. what it creates through the experience. So the ego's identity is created by experience and reinforced through inner dialogue. And there's actually a really nice quote by William Williamson. She says, the ego mind both possesses its desire for love and does everything possible to repel it. <laughs> or if it gets here anyway, to sabotage it. Yep. That is why dealing with issues like control, anger, and neediness is the most important work in preparing ourselves for love. So this is a really important thing because the ego plays both sides of the field most of the time. Oh yeah. It can we'll make you, you up and tear you down. It can mm -hmm. amp you up. It can be like, you're the greatest person in the world. Or it can be like, yeah, you know what? Go after that. You definitely go after that. Like it'll just, it'll pump you up. It'll give you all this sort of sense of false confidence. And then two seconds later, it can just completely shit all over you. You know? <laughs> be like, you suck. Why'd you do that? That was stupid. You know, be like, you suck. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? And it's so like, we put so much importance on this sort of like inward ego that we have, not even realizing that this thing is just dece deceiving us all day long, all the time. And the ego goes on tangents too. So if, if this is coming from your spirit or your intuition, you're not going to experience a tangent. So, you what know, you your a, ego's tangent? a tangent like where um, the ego's like, oh, why'd you do that? That was stupid. You know, nobody's ever going to love you because of X, Y, or Z. And if it's coming from spirit, it's just like, it's more subtle. It's a more subtle distinction and it's in a shorter, a shorter clip. Like this is how you grow. You could improve on this. The ego is more of like a tangent to tear you down. You know what I was thinking of like when we're kids, because obviously that, that when we're children is a, a really, really good sort of like learning ground for strengthening that sort of ego. Remember that show, The Wonder Years? Oh yeah, I love that show. And yeah. Tom Arnold, oh, I, forget, I, for, I forget that little kid's name, Fred Savage or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Fred Savage, yeah. And that kid was just talking to his, his self all day all long, time. all day, every day. Mm -hmm. That whole move, that whole show 
all, I don't know, million of seasons that they have of that show is just him talking to himself. Yeah. And it was, I thought it was really weird. I didn't really think about it until I got older, but like the, the person narrating his voice is like 60 year old man. <laughs> That's so funny. You're, you're so right. I never really thought about that. Do you, you do know? that? Like, have you, have you ever gotten to maybe like a discussion with someone or an argument and um, then you're home in the shower and you're replaying the argument in your mind and you're like, oh, I should have said this, you know, and you have like, you just start having a conversation with yourself, like yeah, as if yeah. you were saying it to that person. <laughs> yeah. I used to do that all the time. I don't really do that so much anymore, mm-hmm. but I know exactly what that's like. And that, that, what is it, what is that mechanism inside of the brain? Like what is, obviously that's a, there's a judgment there, right? Right. Like there's some comparative sort of action that's happening inside of your brain. That's comparing your present experience with an experience that you've gone through in the past. Yeah. Right. And there's also that element of being obsessed with it too. Like, because yeah. if you're still thinking about it and you're bringing it back to your, in your field, that's another, uh, another activation of the ego is that yeah. like obsession. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be something that happened a long time ago. Like literally anything that happens within this next five seconds already has become the past. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Like these words that I'm saying have already become the past. So the ego has this way of storing this information into a database. So let's just say hypothetically after the pod, I can say to myself like, oh, I wish I would have said that. It's automatically comparing that experience with my thoughts of how it actually should be. So we're always pulling from an experience that already happened. And realistically, it's not even an ex- it's not even an existential sort of experience. It's not even real. Like Osho has this quote that says that, you know, if you're constantly living in the graveyard of the past and you're worried about a future that hasn't really happened yet, you're essentially not living at all. You're living a non-existential life because right. the only thing that's really tangible and real is what's in the moment. Because yeah. everything that, that is stored in that database is just, is just a thought that we've identified with. So yeah, it, it, I have that thought every now and again that comes in and you just sort of observe that. The, the ego, it is a storehouse of information. It is mm-hmm. a collection of everything that you've ever experienced, every movie that you've ever watched. It's a collection of everything that you've ever read. And through, you know, 36 plus, 36 years of life, which I've been alive for that long, like I have a lot of experience in that database. Our society more or less teaches us to identify with that experience as being who we are, regardless of whether or not it's actually real or not. It feels real to us because we've experienced it before. But the ego is this this identity that we've created. I guess in Hinduism, they would call, you know, the I being the the deepest, most purest aspect of who you are. And then the name. So if I were to say like my name, like I'm Eric, you always have two sides at work all the time. You have the I and then you have the Eric working collaboratively, well, hopefully collaboratively all at the same time. We don't even realize it. Like we say that we introduce ourselves to people so much that we don't even realize that we're essentially introducing two people all the time. I didn't think about that. Yeah. So yeah, we're all kind yeah. of, we're all kind of, uh, Gemini's. Well, <laughs> we're just like two-faced. Yeah. <laughs> Wayne Dyer actually has a, an acronym for the ego. He says, edging God out. And then of course, Eckhart totally calls it the pain body because realistically the ego is, is created by those type of experiences. Cause those are the ones that we remember. The ego has this tendency to remembering traumatic things in oh, an effort Jesus. to not ever yes. want to ever go through them again. Mm-hmm. And loves to dig them up. At the worst yeah, times. Loves, loves to dig them up. Mm-hmm. So that that's that's what the ego is. It's a collection of of uh, of information, both good and bad. It just really depends on how you go about dissecting that and identifying with that. If we're looking at ego in terms of survival, it can help us do a lot of really great things in the moment. But when it comes to ego, where we're just tapping into that database and just recycling old information from the past, trying to bring it into the future, I think that's when it becomes a problem. So what is what is a healthy ego? 
a healthy ego. Well, actually, we're not going to go into healthy ego first. We're going to go into what a toxic ego is because we're talking a bunch of shit on the ego. We might as well go all the way. <laughs> yeah. Did you read that book, um, Ego is the Enemy? No, I heard about Ryan it. Holiday? Um, it's a good book. It's, uh, I read it a long time ago, so I'm going to do my best to kind of like recap it. But where the story comes from, it was the CEO of American Apparel, and he actually got Ego is the Enemy tattooed on his arm. So uh, he would always remember to stay present and um, to be aware of, of where he was in his success, right? Because success mm-hmm. can so easily turn confidence into arrogance, right? Mm-hmm. So Frank Shamrock, and I never thought that I would take career advice from, from an MMA fighter, but he has a, a, a pretty good plus minus equal analogy that is in this book, right? So the plus meaning the people that are in your life that are key people in your life that are better than you. So someone that you can uh, turn to, to mentor you, somebody that you can look up to, somebody you can learn from. And then um, the minus to have someone in your life that you could teach. So um, anytime that maybe you've had a a failure in either career or um, personal life, just having someone to teach those lessons to. So you can kind of look at your failures objectively, right? And, and learn from those as well and process those feelings. And then also to have somebody who's equal to you, um, that way you have somebody that keeps you sharp, right? And shows you the areas that you can improve. So um, that's kind of the gist of the book. Um, but uh, the whole ego is the enemy thing and the title of the book and you know this guy actually tattooing that on his arm to remind him to be present. Um, I thought was pretty cool, but I don't necessarily agree that the ego is the enemy. I don't think it's an enemy. I just think that it's something that you need to be aware of. Yeah. So what do you think about that? Yeah. Adi Shanti has a quote. It says, ego is neither positive nor negative. These are simply concepts that create more boundaries. Ego is just ego. And the disaster of it all is that you as a spiritual seeker have been conditioned to think of the ego as bad, as an yeah. enemy, right. as something to be destroyed. This simply yeah. strengthens the ego. In fact, such conclusions arise from the ego itself. Pay no attention to them. Don't go to war with yourself. Simply inquire into who you are. And this is a really important thing to point out because the first thing that people do, especially really, really early on their spiritual journey, is that they try and choose a side with spirituality. They say, okay, well, I'm going to renounce all the, you know, maybe dark shadow sides of myself. I'm going to take a position, the position being that I'm going to start operating from spirit and start operating from goodness. So automatically, because you take a position, ego is the enemy. Mm-hmm. And the whole point isn't to, to look at the ego as an enemy, because regardless of whether or not you think it's an enemy, you always have to live with it. Right. You know? It's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. And, and people who live in this fantasy land, like they're, uh, that they don't have an ego or they're so spiritually evolved that they have abolished their ego, um, that's not real. That's not yeah. real talk. No, it's not. It's not real All life. that is is actually the ego talking right. to itself. <laughs> And all exactly. it is is the ego reinforcing the fact that, you know. You have an ego. That you have an ego. That's all it is. Yeah. You know, and I, we, we run into that stuff all the time. I remember I worked for uh, this Kundalini yoga studio a while mm-hmm. back in Pasadena called the Awareness Center. I don't think it's there anymore, but there was a time where I actually worked there as a sound healer. But I also worked at the counter as sort of like an assistant manager type of thing. I was really into Kundalini yoga. Like I loved Kundalini yoga. Mm-hmm. And the people, and I started going to classes there. So there was a nice community there of people that were in a spirituality. But once I started working there, I started working alongside people that were in Kundalini Yoga teachers. So it's one thing to see a Kundalini Yoga teacher teaching a class. It's another thing to see a Kundalini Yoga teacher dealing with patrons, pe- people that, that go to the class at the front desk. Yeah. And this lady used to just shit on their patrons all the time. She'd lose her patience. She'd get angry. 
And she had this sort of like spiritual, more spiritual than thou type of mentality. And it was really confusing to me. Yeah. Because in my it's mind, like that's not how a spiritual person should behave, you know? Yeah. So that was like really disorienting to me because I was like, well, this person has their Aquarian one and two with Kundalini yoga, but they're treating these people so terribly. I'm like, at what point does the spiritual sort of teaching come into place? I feel like, okay, if you're acknowledging it, that's one thing, mm-hmm. but it seemed unconscious. Like she seemed like she didn't even realize that she was being mean to these people, you know? Wow. So that definitely, yeah. definitely exists. I think the point is developing a healthy relationship to ego. So why, why is it that we need an ego? Because without it, we run the risk well, without it, we would run on instinct. We'd basically be like an animal. Right. Our experiences do a lot of good things because we learn from the, the bad things that we've done. And we also learn from the good things that we've done. We have a context for what is good and what is bad mm-hmm. or what may hurt us or what you know doesn't hurt us. So it's good to have that database in order to make that distinction. We need an ego because if we you know, we didn't, we couldn't tell ourselves apart from somebody else. And that's really important to make that distinction too. It allows us to gain perspective from our experiences. It allows us to learn, allows us to grow. And at the same time, I think this is something that they actually teach in Zen. We need an ego to awaken to spirit because it is the greatest teacher. Because without an ego, we couldn't, we couldn't awaken to that spiritual aspect in ourselves because it is, the, it is the greatest contrast that we have. We can't fully experience spirit because we're already operating from that place. It's like yeah. trying to see, it's like trying to bite your own teeth. Like you're already... <laughs> operating from the place that you're talking about, right? right. So the only yeah. way that we can see or get to experience spirit is through, um, of course, there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. But when it comes to the ego, it is such a contrast to who we really are that it becomes the perfect mirror that points us in the direction of actually who we are. So the ego actually helps us awaken to the divinity inside through showing us all the things that we're not. And the ego is, a, it's really, really meant to protect you. It's like this alarm system. If you're in the present moment and you're going through your experience, so you're like in the forest, like I was last weekend, like it can protect you from being killed. And that's a good mm-hmm. thing. And in, Even though you don't necessarily need that these days. I mean, being killed by wild animals, I guess it's possible, but it doesn't happen like it used oh, to. Oh, no, we have a much, I think we have a, a different type of predator inward villain these days, not necessarily uh, wild animals. We have our emotional crazy shit that has yeah. the ability to hurt us more than actual animals do. Agreed. You know what I mean? It's emotion. It's not physical, physical. I mean, at least for us here in the West, it's not physical threats that really are things that we typically have to worry about. I know some people do, but it's emotional threats that I think are the biggest challenge that we have. Oh my gosh. The emotional threats are like at an all time high. Oh yeah. And the the crazy thing about the emotional threats is that we actually do it to ourselves, Mm -hmm. which is even crazier. Or somebody else or like a narcissist or some crazy toxic person can also sort of like be a catalyst for that. But for the most part, that inward dialogue, that self-deprecating sort of behavior Mm -hmm. comes from our own narrative of what we think about ourselves. You know what I mean? hundred percent. It's those limiting beliefs and that story that you tell yourself that that, um, you're not worthy. So you have to take responsibility for your own narrative and um, choose choose the reality in which you want to live and the rea- reality in, in which you want to experience. Yeah. When I think about the stories of, uh, let's just say, I'll go in order here. So in B- Buddhism, they have the story of Buddha and Mara, right? Where he was sitting underneath the Bodhi tree. Mm-hmm. Mara came to him, showed him all this crazy shit. There was like beautiful women. There was like sex, drugs, basically our equivalent now, to try and tempt the Buddha, right? And did the Buddha didn't go and kick Mara's ass, right? He didn't do that. He just saw through the illusion of that whole game and he transcended Mara. He didn't even have to engage in a fight. 
He just understood the whole functions of his own ego, ego equating to desire, and he no longer felt compelled to go chase after that because he knows that it led to suffering. So the ego, for the most part, can lead us down that path of suffering. So oh, yeah. he did it. I wouldn't have made it. I, I like to party. I wouldn't have made yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, but you, you, you're trying to maintain some level of balance. Not all of us can sit underneath <laughs> Bodhi trees and kind of do that shit, even though Buddha was actually married and lived a regular everyday life, which I'm sure he probably got fucked up every once in a while on the weekends, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. Blow yeah, some steam. But, but the whole point is that he didn't, he didn't completely destroy the ego. Yeah. The ego is just another word for Mara, right? So mm-hmm. that's the equivalent in Buddhism. And then in Christianity, you have the God and devil. Mm-hmm. Like the devil is a part of God. Like the devil just doesn't know, somehow fell asleep. The devil, you can also be looked at as ego. I guess you're right. I never thought yeah. about that. Yeah. It, it, it is that inner dialogue. It's that little sort of devil on your shoulder telling you to do all this crazy shit. Like, and, and then the angel is spirit. Telling yeah, exactly. Like, oh, and the angel is spirit. Like, and, yeah. and God doesn't completely, like you, God can't annihilate the devil because the devil is a part of God. So right. it isn't so much about completely destroying the devil, but to transcend it, to realize that everything that it's about is an illusion based off of desire and fear and things like that. Mm-hmm. So they all have worthy adversaries, but at, at no point in those stories does it ever involve completely eradicating the negative or the shadow. It just becomes about transcending them by understanding the illusory nature of them, mm-hmm. by also understanding where your positioning is in that. So other reasons why we need an ego one, we wouldn't even know who the fuck we are if we didn't have one. Like we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. Mm-hmm. We had no concept for our experience. So a toxic ego, we'll go over this really quick before we get oh. into the good stuff. Let's see here. There's a difference between pain and suffering, right? This is a distinction that we absolutely need to make because mm-hmm. pain is something that you experience in the moment that it happens, right? Physical pain. And then you have suffering. Suffering is prolonged pain, right? It could be emotional uh, it also could be physical, but in our case, we're talking more emotional. So there's nothing in the present moment that speaks to a prolonged sense of suffering. Like when we experience pain, that's one thing. So it's not wrong to experience pain, but the ego experiences suffering. There's this prolonged sense of suffering because for the most part, it archives a lot of the negative experiences that we have and continuously keeps recycling those negative experiences through negative self-talk, things like that. So it leads to a lot of suffering. So that is like a, a toxic ego not checked. So that would happen when we aren't being mindful and aware of the thoughts that we think and we're just letting our minds just mind fuck us with all this crazy stuff, you know? Yeah, for sure. Like uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of some real world examples of um, toxic ego. And the first thing well, that comes to mind is listening to advice and rarely following it. It's like you know that the advice that you're receiving from your friend you know, on this dumbass guy you're dating is correct, um, but you just can't seem to follow it. Well, the, all, all advice becomes arbitrary in a way, right? Yeah. Like it, it, it seems sort of like fleeting because it's not within your experience. That person is experiencing life the way that he experienced it. And even if he told you a story, you're not going to be able to extract the same sort of experience from it as he did because it's not your experience. I mean, you can get insight from somebody, but yeah. more often than not, there are people that try and relate to somebody else's experience as their own. And how can that really be done when everybody, when no two experiences are the same? Uh, maybe that wasn't a good example. Maybe a better example would be um, if you're in, in an argument with your partner and you keep going even when you know you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because you're not being aware. That's all unconscious behavior at that point. Yeah. Yeah, because or, it's all just to fluff your own ego. That, that, that to me is, is a, an attempt for survival at the ego. You're trying to protect yourself because you feel like this person is beating you down or telling you that you're wrong. 
right? Exactly. So that is another way that the ego tries to protect itself. Like it, it doesn't know that it's not fighting an animal. Like it doesn't know that it's a life or death situation. Like so it, it translates somebody telling you something negative as still a threat to its life. So it's going to do stuff like that when it comes to maybe talking to your girlfriend or and you just go on and on and on and on and on and on and, and, and have to absolutely be right. That's a form of toxic ego. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I, I was thinking of an example that um, of a toxic ego that is um, maybe you and I, right? So you trying to say never, I have a toxic ego, Jen? No, no, no. No, I'm just saying we both have this trait, um, but it's, it's still the ego, but it's opposite. So yeah. hear, hear me out here. So um, you never see flaws. Like you never see the red flags. You just charge ahead because you're at least a lover. not at first. Yeah. I see them eventually. Eventually, but it's not, it's not, yeah. You know, people have that saying like innocent until proven guilty. Right. Or guilty until proven innocent. That's right? us. Most people, for the most part, do the whole like guilty until proven innocent type of thing. Mm-hmm. Mine is more you're innocent until proven guilty. Like exactly. I put trust into people at the very beginning and they, of course, can lose that, but I will decide to trust them until they hurt me. That's not always a good recipe for emotional well-being because that doesn't necessarily, it doesn't, there's nothing there to protect you from being hurt. So like you never see the flaws in a person because um, you're a lover, um, but I actually look for flaws in someone in the beginning. So that's, that's our ego, even though it's an opposite action, um, it's still an expression of my ego, an expression of your ego. And I see flaws, but I, I tend to kind of look over them a little bit mm-hmm. because I think yeah. to myself, well, I'm a flawed human being too. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've gone through these type of experiences before. Like I'm, I know what it's like to be them. So I express compassion for them, right? And I try and understand where they're coming from. And uh, I think that's a good trait to have until, you know, that's a permission slip for other people to just continuously keep treating you like shit. That's not a good thing. Right. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Like having a, a, a form of toxic ego, and we're talking past tense because I'm not necessarily this way as much anymore. You're not. Yeah, you've come a long way. Yeah, yeah. So I know Something that there needs to be on. that sort of 3D masculine aspect of myself, which is maybe identifying more with the ego and utilizing that sort of survivalistic sort of like trait by being able to distinguish this in somebody and put my foot down and be like, okay, this isn't good. So yeah, I think that's a, a really, really good example of that. Another, another example of a toxic ego is how we become addicted to so many things, right? Oh, yeah. Like we, get, we get addicted to fucking everything. Everything. Right? It's like when we decided to incarnate into this realm, we've been given the sense of touch. We become addicted to sex. That's like a huge thing. People are just addicted to sex. They're addicted to sexual imagery. They're addicted to touch. They're addicted to, you know, just interactions with other people. So that can be looked at as an addiction. Food which is a sense of taste. Yeah. Lots of people that are addicted to food. Yeah. You know, obesity is a kind of a big deal. Um, there are people that are di- addicted to hearing. Well, you can equate thoughts into that. There are people that are addicted to hearing thoughts. There are people that are addicted to words. And uh, I don't know where smell lands in that. I don't know. You think there are people that are addicted to smelling shit? Yeah, I've never heard of anybody that's addicted to smelling things, but that makes sense. I guess you're like, maybe like a big, I feel like smell works in collaboration with all the other senses because you could obviously sniff Coke. Like you could huff paint. I mean, it's a bit, feel bad talking about this, but I mean, those are probably noticeable addictions that some people have. Yeah, that are associated with And these are all forms of toxic ego because why do do we engage, engage in these things? 
and likes too. I feel like that's probably the most common thing is being addicted to what other people think and equating your self-worth with how many likes you get on social media. That's like, that's like the most common addiction right now, especially with young people. Judging in that all, I think Instagram is pretty much like a living embodiment of what ego is and it can be used in a healthy way, but it can also be used in a toxic way. That's all I see with those. It's just that you, you actually have a visual interpretation. You have a, a, a visual way to see the validation that the ego actually is looking for through a like button. And you're also constantly comparing yourself to other people to either make yourself feel like you're better than them or making yourself jealous of them. So it's, it's another, you know, ego on both ends. So it's like people just, they see other people as threats mm-hmm. to their well-being. So somebody can can look at it as a lack of followers or somebody reporting their account as being the same thing as like seeing a bear in the wild and it freaks out and it starts behaving in this sort of like nihilistic sort of like fearful flight or fight way. Yeah, so other ways that the ego is toxic is habitual cyclical thinking of past and the future emotions. And this is really, really dangerous because as long as you're constantly thinking about thoughts, you're pulling from all the experiences that you've ever had and you're bringing them into your present moment. And I think we talked about this before, that that the mind and the ego can't tell the difference between physical pain and emotional pain. So if you suffered a trauma when you were 17 or 18 years old, that still has the ability to this day to hurt you in the same way. If you're constantly reliving that inside of your mind, you risk bringing that into your present moment. Absolutely. You're you're reliving reliving that trauma over and over. Yeah, you're reliving it over and over again. I think that was uh, Joe Dispenza that talked about like, you know, in the beginning it becomes a habit and then eventually it becomes a behavior. And after it becomes a behavior, it becomes a part of your personality. It does. And and that energy is stored in your body and uh, can actually cause you to be physically unwell. Yeah, so those are, uh, it's really, really important to be mindful of the, the things that you think, those reoccurring emotions and feelings that you're just constantly recycling, that would be a form of toxic ego. And then neediness. Neediness is also the ego's sort of uh, attempt for grasping for security. So other things, I have I've like such a huge ass list, I didn't realize we probably wouldn't be able to get through all of it. So ego's pretty much just in, it's just drunk on experiences. You know, Twitter's a form of toxic ego. You know, it's like this reverberation of thoughts meant for relating. Oh, and Lord. relating isn't bad, but relating through thoughts and relating through experience are two different things. And Twitter's just like a snippet of a thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's not, Twitter is just like a snippet of whatever someone is thinking or a snippet of a situation. It's never yeah. the full picture. It's just like. These are all things that we've gotten so used to, so used to using. Like we don't even realize that the things like Instagram or, or Twitter, all they are are just recycling things that have already happened. Mm-hmm. And think of how many people actually use these platforms and think of how often it takes them away from living the life that they're currently in the moment experiencing. It is like a living manifestation of the ego it being is. too loud. It, and it's terrifying at how loud those voices are. See, this yeah. is why I don't do social media. This is exactly why. Yeah. I feel like it's like brain cancer. Well, it just depends on how you how you kind of swing it. It depends on how you use it. So the ego's imagery in the mind. How does the ego... What does the imagery look like? This is one thing I really wanted to touch on because there are people, and I think we talked about this prior to the podcast, Jen, when we're talking about um, different topics is there are people that maybe not necessarily hear that sort of negative self-talk or just in this incessant sort of cycle of thoughts, but people that actually see imageries, people that see sometimes scary shit. Have you ever gone, have you ever fallen asleep and had a dream and had a nightmare and woken up and being like, why the fuck did I dream that? Oh, dude. That is all the time. 
yeah. had very violent dreams. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Very violent. Like a lot of end of the world dreams, a lot of war dreams. I've never had a dream where I was physically harming someone else. I feel like I'm always, uh, but I'm, I'm always witnessing some type of, um, some type of crime, whether it be yeah. like murder or whatever, but it, it's never like me actually doing the act, but it's certainly witnessing it and living through it. So when you wake up from that dream, has it ever scared you the fact that you dreamt something so violent? Yeah. It oftentimes, oftentimes does. Cause I'm like, we're, uh, these are obviously not scenes or images that I've ever seen in this lifetime. So where the hell did that come from? And how did I create that in my mind? And do you think that that experience or maybe in the past had caused some anxiety? Like it, was it something that like you'd sat with that following week and thought like, okay, well, does this mean maybe that I'm a violent person? You know, I have thought that. I have yeah. thought that. And it's made me question myself like, oh my gosh, if I can, if I can think this way, like who, who is this person deep down inside? Like, where did that come from? And I yeah. think maybe you, you have the the ability to be cognizant of, I, I think, I, I think you as a person have the ability to sort of like observe that and know that at the core, you're obviously not somebody to ever outwardly project that type of violence out into the world. Right. Right. So maybe it becomes something that just sort of like disappears into your consciousness. But the reason why I bring this up is I've known a lot of people in the past that have had particularly violent dreams or people that go throughout their life. And one day it could be while they're in the shower. It could be while they're walking down the street, suddenly they're hit with just this crazy, scary imagery inside of their mind that really freaks them out. That happens a lot to me when I'm driving and I'll have like an image of a very bloody and gnarly car accident with me involved. And it's like, why the fuck would I even think that? Where did that come from? And yeah. you know, it's just, I, it's, it's your ego that puts these images out and you just have to be aware of them and shut them down. Right. And you have to be very careful of your thoughts because, you know, thoughts become reality. So anytime I have like a vision like that and kind of scare myself or freak myself out, um, I'll do an exercise where I'll put my like visualize putting my car in a protective like bubble of like angel dust, for example, you know, to angel protect dust? me. Yeah. Like the drug? Um, no, like, like <laughs> you know, holographic dust from an angel or a oh, fucking yeah. fairy like or some Lisa kind Frank, of Lisa magical Frank, like, fairy yeah. dust. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like a um, a holographic bubble around my car, um, as as like a protection to make sure that I don't manifest that into reality. Well, well, let's unpack that really quick, Healy. Here, because when you talk about okay, say you're driving a car, and mm-hmm. then you get this fear that comes up that you may get into a car accident. Right? There are two types of perspectives that people take when it comes to this. Let's just say the maybe toxic ego's perspective, which is they get scared. They don't understand why they're thinking this. Mm-hmm. And so they try and resist the fact that they're thinking that. And so the resistance to that creates panic. Maybe it'll create anxiety. Absolutely. It could also ultimately lead in you actually manifesting a car accident. Right. Right. Exactly. Right? And so that, that is, that is a perfect example of how we identify negatively with the ego. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the spiritual perspective, which is seeing it from awareness of being the mindful observer of that is that thought comes up that you may get into a car accident. Well, what's the ego trying to tell you? The ego is trying to scan its environment for a potential threat. It wants to keep you alive. Its only way to explain to you that there's a threat is by tapping into your archive of memories, by tacking, t- tapping into its own imagery that it's accumulated over years of watching movies and seeing unfortunate experiences happen to other people. And it shows this imagery on the screen of consciousness so that you can see it and hopefully 
prevent yourself from getting into a situation like that, mm-hmm. right? So the issue is, is that you're obviously not in, you know, a flight or fight sort of like survivalist sort of like uh, um, situation where that really needs to happen. But the ego is always going to try and protect you at all costs. So if you have imagery that comes into your mind randomly, I wouldn't identify so much with the images that come up. Mm-hmm. I would just try and see that as it's the way that the ego is trying to communicate something to you, you know? Right. What, what is the imagery of the ego come from? It comes from movies. It comes from news. It comes from your judgments. It comes from your memories. It comes from popular culture. Mm-hmm. It comes from your fears. It comes from your hopes. It comes from your past and your future. So you have an entire gallery and archive of experiences inside of your ego. Mm-hmm. And the only way that the ego can communicate with you is through these images, if not through dialogue. There are right. people that have particularly scary fucking thoughts that come into their mind too, which is like to hurt themselves. And they young will- people who fantasize about that. There's actually, um, like this is pretty common for young people is um, to have like an obsession with death and be really fascinated with death and crossing over to the other side. And usually those people that have those unusual fascinations with death will take their own life. That's, that's crazy because mm-hmm. there's nothing unhealthy about being fascinated with death. Nothing, right? yeah. But it is a part of our culture to sort of stigmatize it in a way. Right. Right. So we have identified the concept of death as being a negative thing. Mm-hmm. And because it's a negative thing, we think we should somehow escape from it, that we should resist it. And we'll do a lot of things in order to resist it. This is a perf- that story is a perfect example of that. The things that we will do in order to run away from stuff is crazy. I noticed that children get to a certain age where they become fascinated with death. Like I know lots of kids and I don't know why this is a pattern, but there are a lot of kids that when they hit like maybe 11 or 12, just become obsessed with horror movies. Yeah. Oh, that was me. Yeah. They become obsessed with horror movies. Obsessed. Yeah. And the reason why I think is because your parents for the most part through most of your young adult life are trying to keep that from you. You never have a formal conversation with your parents about what death is what scary shit is. They're always trying their best to give you a certain type of experience, but it's in the background of everything that exists in life, in school, through your music. Like you, you can't go very long without seeing some sort of imagery of death. So children naturally become curious about it. Mm-hmm. And I think once you yeah. get a little older, once you start developing that sense of self, that's when you start diving into stuff like that. I noticed that children just get really in. I knew this kid that was obsessed with the movie It, and I can't even watch that movie. Ooh, ew. I don't do like clowns. the new one. Get a fucking it poster on her wall. Oh no, you dude. know, nope. and had like a little had a little it uh, doll on her bed. No sir, right? Not this lady. There's mm-hmm. something that you can respect about that because they're obviously not afraid of it, right? Right. But there's something about that that comes into my mind when I think about that. I'm like, oh, that's scary shit. I don't want to subject myself to that, even though I know that it's fake. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it, it's natural for what I'm. I guess the point of what I'm trying to bring up is that it's natural for the human to be, become interested in death. Right. But somebody needs to explain to these children and to us as we get older that there's nothing abnormal and, and unhealthy about that fascination. Right. Because if you don't have that conversation, then you run the risk of a, a kid just like you're talking about having these sort of thoughts and not knowing what to do with them. And instead of really, really looking really deep into the inner workings of the ego, will attempt to try and get rid of those thoughts through action. Yeah. Or you'll identify with the thought and do something stupid. Yeah. Or uh, experiment, like trying to push it to um, push it to the edge, right? You know, maybe with asphyxiation and then accident- accidentally taking their own life. 
um, just by wanting to experience what that would feel like. I don't know why somebody would do that, but I remember when I was a kid, there was like that thing that used to happen through school where people would like put their, their hands on their, their neck like this and they would yeah. breathe and they'd sort of like and pass out and pass out. Mm-hmm. It, I think it's, it's natural for the, for a human being to explore alternate states of consciousness. Right. But no one is having this conversation to them about what is acceptable and what isn't. Yeah. Especially when you're a child, you're so restricted. More often than not, you're just playing by the rules that somebody else sets for you. Right. And naturally, we don't like that. So we end up trying to break the rules by doing stupid things. So I think a really important thing to point out here is observation versus identification. So observation is observing your thoughts, observing the imagery as it pops into your mind. Identification is an unconscious behavior that because it's coming into my mind, that must be me. Yeah. Right. Because a thought is not self-employed. A thought can't exist without your investment in it. Mm-hmm. You know, That's a true. thought cannot have its own life unless you've identified a certain aspect of your beingness with the thought. Mm-hmm. So you have the opportunity and the choice to charge a thought and bring it to life. Or you have the opportunity to just observe it for what it is, which is the imagery of the ego. But in order to make that distinction, you have to absolutely have to understand that there is a deeper force inside of you, which is your spirit, in order to make that distinction. And that's the thing that we talked about before. There aren't a whole lot of people that realize that there's something other than thought, there's something that other than the ego that functions inside of your body. Because in order to make that distinction of like, okay, the ego is not me. Well, what are you then? You're a spirit. The observer of ego is spirit. So that's the one thing you need to get really clear on, which is that there are essentially kind of two forces of you working most of the time, which is your spiritual aspect of yourself and your ego. So when the imagery pops up into your mind and you're operating from spirit, you'll see that, oh, that's just my ego trying to tell me something. That's just Mm -hmm. my ego trying to relate to its environment in some way. Mm -hmm. You know, that's my ego trying to let me know that there's maybe a potential threat in my environment or it's maybe my ego just trying to show me imagery that somehow relates to a certain situation that I'm in. And if you can see it from that perspective, then you'll stop falling victim to being hypnotized by the shit that it shows you on a regular everyday basis, you know? And and becoming obsessed and enchanted with it and kind of replaying it and, and experiencing those negative mo- emotions over and over. Because ego is addicted to emotional stimulation. Yeah. You know, whatever is in your environment that has the ability to generate some sort of thought, it's going to do it, mm-hmm. you know? Like if you look at anything in this room right now or anything that's in front of you and you look at it, it has a memory, more more than likely has a memory associated with it. So if you look at a bed, okay, that's the place that I sleep. Mm-hmm. If you look at a computer, that's what I use in order to do my work. You look at a car, you think of how you use it to go to work. Every little thing in our environment has a, def- has a definition. We identify it a certain way. But you're not sitting there thinking that it's you most of the time. So why would you think that scary imagery is you too? Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, you, so I think it's really important to make that distinction and realize that the ego is just trying to relate to its environment. It's just trying to assist you in some way, but it doesn't realize that sometimes it negatively assists you by bringing up images that shouldn't be brought up, you know? And, you know, just like dealing with toxic traits of the ego, it's all about awareness and being aware that this is a toxic trait and not to act on it, right? Right. This is a toxic thought. This is, you know, this is just my ego and just not acting on all of those um, images or emotions that you're experiencing. I agree. Ego's main objective is to protect you. 
I think that if, if you can if you can really sit with that and meditate on that, then you're not going to fall into this whole, I hate the ego, the ego is bad. The ego is meant to protect you. It wants to survive. That sense of self that gives you the ability to eat and breathe and live in this reality, that is the ego protecting you. The, the issue comes when you start identifying every little thing that it does as being who you are. And mm-hmm. it's so easy to do that because we work so intimately with it. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So if you could, just like you said, maintain that observation versus identifying with it, then you can always create distance between yourself, your spirit self, and your actual ego. And you'll look at it more as like a collaborative tool. It's the software program that you need in order to be able to actively work in your present environment. I think that's a really important distinction to make. The ego works the best in the moment. It doesn't work the best through thoughts. It doesn't work the best through recycling information and and showing you imagery. It works the best when you're cooking a meal, when you're putting fucking gas in your car, when you're working out. Mm -hmm. All those things, you're using the ego and all those things are helping you move, but you're not identifying with those experiences. For whatever reason, we have this tendency to identify with the most negative aspects of the ego. Because those are things that trigger us. Those are the Mm -hmm. things that come up that we don't want to feel or experience. But the only reason why the ego brings up, let's just say, particularly traumatic experiences is because it wants you to fucking pay attention and actually address it, Mm -hmm. right? So there are people that like put trauma to the side. They don't deal with their emotions. And when the ego brings that imagery into your mind, all it's asking for you to do is to accept it and to actively work on whatever it is that it's showing you. Mm -hmm. And if you can accept it, and not be afraid of it, then you'll notice that it just sort of disappears and goes away. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. And if you're having a, bit- a hard time distinguishing the difference, ego always operates from a place of fear and spirit always operates from a place of love. So right. the exactly. easiest way to distinguish the difference. Yeah, because there are a lot of people like, oh, I, I, I see this imagery. Does that make me evil? Does that make me bad? They'll ask a question like, should I feel guilty for having this thought? And then they'll start going through this whole like, well, how do I stop this? Well, you need to understand that all those questions I just asked are the ego asking itself questions. Like you're not going to be able to stop the ego with questions, right? The ego is not going to be the one to save you from itself, you know? So the best way to resolve yourself of the ego is by understanding what it does, is by understanding what its function is in your life. You're not going to go, you're not going to win a battle with the ego. So when you have that imagery come into your mind, don't ask, don't, don't ask those questions because those questions are just ego trying to reinforce and, and, and solve a problem that it itself created. The best way is to just observe it. That's right. If you observe the ego and you understand how it works, then you're not going to be hypnotized by it. And then it will naturally, naturally quiet on its own. Mm-hmm. You won't have to quiet it. It'll quiet itself. So I think a healthy ego then, Jen, in closing, in closing. Is, is to work in balance with your ego to develop a relationship with it by understanding what its true function is in your life. Absolutely. And somebody might ask, well, what is spirit? What is spirit? What is the spirit in contrast to the ego? What is the observer of the ego? To me, the spirit is the most loving aspect of who you are. And you can, and, and people are like, well, well, how do you know? Well, by all the things that make you feel really good, all the things that bring joy into your life, mm-hmm. which is nurturing things. Like if you give plants water, they grow. If two people fall in love, they create life. There's a lot of really amazing things that come from a human being when they love. And that's how you know that is that is the most intrinsic aspect of who we were supposed or meant to be. There are so many amazing things that come out of that. When the ego overshadows that, it tends to eclipse all those things and we start operating in a different way. So if you ever find yourself operating from fear, you're more than likely operating from ego. 
I remember, I remember talking to friends when I used to do sound baths or uh, people that would come up to me and they would be like, oh, you know, I'm feeling so sad or I'm feeling so depressed. I don't know what to do about this. Like, what, what do I do? And I, I think inside of my mind, well, your solution is actually in the question because you're talking about yourself as if you're two different people. Mm-hmm. You're able to acknowledge the fact that you're sad. Who is it that acknowledges it? You say, I am sad. Well, there's a force inside of you that is able to acknowledge the fact that you're feeling this way, but people don't realize that there's an observer of that occurrence, Mm -hmm. you know? So when someone says, I am sad, well, you got to like really, really sit with, well, who's asking the question? And if you know that you're sad, you know, you need to practice integration because you know what the issue is. You just need to be present with your feelings and actively work on creating uh, a different type of experience for yourself. Most people, more often than not, as, as the days go by, are always talking about themselves as if they're two different people all the time. Like I talked about earlier, which is like, we introduce ourselves to others, we're like, I am Eric, I am Jen. It's like, you just are. Fundamentally at the core, the spirit will say, you just are. Like, you am. I don't know if that's right English, but you am. <laughs> right? It's not, but yeah, I, no. I get what you're saying. So healthy, and, and that's spirit. Spirit is love. Spirit is God. Spirit, spirit is creativity. It is beauty. It is all the things that you absolutely love about yourself that mm-hmm. are being covered up by your ego. All right. Well, that was very informative. Lots of information. Lots of info, Jen. Yeah. Hopefully at this point, you don't have nightmares anymore, do you? Oh, yeah. No, all the time. Oh, Jen, you got to do something about that. I have like a dream or a nightmare every night. I'm, I'm a very lucid and active dreamer uh, you're and they're all over the place le- like you want to learn the hard way it's sometimes it's rainbows and butterflies sometimes it's the end of the world like i never know i have some of those dreams too and you know what? i'm not going to disclude myself from that whole conversation the reason why this is coming up is because this is something that i used to struggle with back in the day right which is sometimes you'll just get these really crazy thoughts that come into your mind you're just like why the fuck would i think that mm-hmm. you know like why would i believe this about somebody you know, like or somebody comes by and triggers you a certain way, there's that sort of judge inside of you that's like, fuck that guy, you know? Yeah. Or yeah. there's like, there's that, you know, that, that, that ex reaches out to you and you feel those judgments and you're like, oh, that, that monologue, that inner, inner voice comes in and we can get really, really hard on ourselves when we don't realize that it's the ego trying to inform you of something. Mm-hmm. But I used to get that all the time. Like a scary thought would come into my mind and I'd be like, oh my God, does this mean I'm an evil person? Does this mean that I'm bad? And then I would circulate that and I would sit with that for like a week and be like, oh crap, I must be like maybe slowly going crazy. You can make yourself crazy by constantly recycling these thoughts over and over and over and over again. Right. That's why it's it's so, so important to practice mindful observation. And then Mind. I think the, the most important thing, which is observation versus, identi- versus identification. Mm-hmm. Where are you in that? Are you the observer or are you the one that identifies with? You're just the observer. You're not the story, you know? All goes back to mindfulness. It all goes back to mindfulness, Jen. It all goes back to mindfulness. Hopefully the next time I go camping, I'll be able to burn a fire. Oh, I hope so. You know what I mean? Make those s'mores. We are not freezing your ass off all night. Oh, I know. We couldn't even make s'mores. Oh, no s'mores? Yeah, my ego came in and was like, what the fuck? We can't have s'mores, man. (laughs) And I had to just practice mindful awareness and be like, you know what? There'll be s'mores next time. Hope you had a warm sleeping bag. Yeah, (laughs) a warm sleeping bag. Yeah, thank you guys for tuning in to Buy Nobody's Podcast. That was was kind of deep. 
that was kind of deep. Hopefully at this point you have a better idea of kind of what your ego is doing. Just look at it as almost like a pal, like a friend, like a buddy that kind of knows but doesn't know, but thinks he knows, but you know really that he doesn't really know. So you just got to like learn to hang out with them. You know, it's like when you're out with your cousins and then there's like that one cousin that nobody likes that like your parents are like, oh, you hang out with him, be nice to him. And you're like, <laughs> all right, yeah, yeah. And you just, you can decide to hate him or think he's a punk ass or you can just be like, you know what? Let me make you one of us. You know, <laughs> shower him with love because he's your pal. He's really there to help you survive. For sure. So thank you guys for tuning in to Find Nobody's Podcast. You can find this uh, YouTube episode in the, the description of the podcast. If you guys want to see the, the video aspect of this, if you guys want to reach out to us, podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram. Uh, like and subscribe and share our posts if you can. Or actually leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It would really, really help us out. I think that's it, Jen, right? That's all. All right. Namaste, guys. Namaste, friends. <laughs>